It's crazy stuff, isn't it? You're, you're, you're probably, I would imagine, at a point going, like, I don't even know what to make of this. What's going on? I, I'm going to suspect that there's some things here that are teasing out familiarity. It's like, this feels like something I've heard before, or I'm watching a certain pattern of Jesus, maybe, but like, what the heck is going on? I'm so excited about this chapter with you, honestly, because it is so cool. And what I want to do is take you on a journey through it right now, because here is what John is doing, is he's giving you a picture of what the prophetic mission of the church, and you are the church, mind you, he is giving you a prophetic mission of the church right now. Right now in Revelation always means between Christ's first and second coming. So right now certainly means the 90s AD, and we always want to read from that perspective first, to when John wrote it to these actual seven churches. But it's applicable to this entire what we can call church age that we live in, this, this, this era of time between Christ's first and second coming. What John is doing, let me say it again, is giving you a picture of what life is like for you, your call, your mandate, your mission as a church in this age. And he is doing it by showing how what you do parallels what God has been doing through his prophets from the beginning. Do you remember this line from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he chases it by saying, and blessed are you when men insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you notice that you get this story in Revelation 11 of both persecution but also victory and vindication. This is the story of the prophets. This is the story of the church age. This is the story of you and the call God has on your life. And he is taking that entire prophetic tradition and dragging detail out of detail and detail after detail after prophet after prophet after prophet from the Old Testament and he's smashing it all together. We're just putting it in a blender here, baby, and that blender is called Revelation 11. And you are going to see bits and pieces of every prophet swimming around in that blender, and each one of those stories is meant to get invoked as you read bit by bit by bit. You know how that works in life? Where if you know a story well, someone doesn't have to repeat the whole story to you. They can simply drop a word, a phrase, or a line, and it immediately brings like a whole kind of like history and drama and story and, 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 and motif. And, and, and you could do this with songs. Have you ever done this with songs where people, I should have brought some samples in, but let, like people can play like two notes out of a song and like, oh, you know the whole song. No one needs to explain the song, right? It's just there. This is what John is doing with the Old Testament prophets in Revelation 11. Because for the people of God, 
those are the stories that define them. I think the stories that define us tend to be more things like, well, well let's, let's put a sampling out there. Here's what I think are the stories that define us today. We can go fiction and nonfiction. Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. Now I know I'm talking from my perspective right now, but I think I could throw art, certain artists out there and it invokes things immediately. If I was to throw artists out there like Michael Jackson, Britney Spears, Queen. That, that we, we all share that, that common storyline, don't we? I could get into political storylines. I could talk about the Cold War. I could talk about 9-11. I can talk about any number of what we would consider major events. For those of you of a little bit older generation, I can talk about space race. I can talk about nuclear scares or something like that. I, I mean, I could talk about the Kennedy assassination. There are stories both at a cultural level and at a more, shall we say, world-significant level that define us, don't they? Songs, movies. I, I mean, uh, if I say this, yo, Adrian. <laughs> do I have to say anything more? And, and if I was to say, and if I was to be preaching to you right now, and I was to be saying things like, like, hang in there to the end, overcome, endure, fight. He who overcomes will be given a crown. Like, hang in there. God wants you to hang in there. God wants you to fight. You're going to get knocked down. Hang in there. Yo, Adrian! I've suddenly tapped an entire storyline of hope and a, a storyline of overcoming and a storyline of everything that I don't even have to say anything more. It, it, it brings with it an emotional kind of baggage. This is what John is doing here. And he's just dropping lines, phrases. He's sampling, if you will, prophet after prophet after prophet. And because I don't think the Old Testament prophets are really the stories that define us as the people of God anymore, they often get missed. So what I want to do is walk you through Revelation 11. And what I'm going to do is not chapter and verse what he's drawing from, because that's not interesting. And that's never the point of figuring out what a New Testament writer is doing with an Old Testament illusion. The point is to draw on the storyline that defines you. The quote is just the door. Anyone can read Revelation and look at a footnote and go, oh, look, that quote's Isaiah 53. Well, who cares? I, I mean, if, if it stops there, it doesn't matter. It only matters if Isaiah 53 is a story that gets in your bones and defines you. The line is just opening the field of vision. So let me take you through what John is doing. So I'm given a reed, just like Ezekiel was given a reed. It was a measuring rod. And just like Ezekiel was told, in a time when his people were brought into captivity, when the people of Israel were sent out into exile, when they were wailing in Babylon under the judgment and defeat of the Babylonian Empire and the judgment of God, 
We see Ezekiel back then given a vision in the time of absolute hopelessness to go and measure a temple. And the temple is going to be glorious. And the temple is going to be beautiful. The temple has just been destroyed. But this new eschatological or end times temple to come is going to be better by fire. And just like Ezekiel was given a measuring rod by God to go and try to measure just how big God's new kingdom temple will be. So John is given a measuring rod and doing the exact same thing. It's a measure of hope out of defeat. It's a message that just as Ezekiel and the people of God were once completely destroyed by another empire, so God is giving the same hope to you that there will be restoration through the same mechanism. Are you with me? Now, you don't know Ezekiel. You probably have not read Ezekiel 40 to 48 in the last 10 years easily. But John thinks you have. And for the people of God who didn't have TV and didn't have Spotify, they had the Old Testament stories to move them and define them. So they knew this hope well. And John is drawing on it. That's what's going on. He keeps going. He says, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I remember when Daniel found himself in exile at the same time of Ezekiel. And he too was given a prophecy from God that for 42 months or a times, time and half a time, which if that's a year, two years and a half a year is three and a half years, which is 42 months. You with me? right? Also faced struggle and suffering and the trampling under the nations and empires that had destroyed them, trying to hold on to a grasp of hope. All right? Do you see how he's sampling? Let's keep going. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, which is a times, a time, and a half a time, or 42 months. The math is all the same. So in this time, just like Daniel prophesied, just like Ezekiel prophesied, just like I raised people up to continue to bring my word to them in a time of crisis and despair, I am still raising you up, church, to do the same in a time of crisis and despair. And just like my son Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, so I am raising up two witnesses. You will be my witnesses, Jesus style, to go out and do what the prophets have done before you. And I will give you power. You will be clothed in sackcloth because just like every prophet did, it's calls of repentance and mourning and return. Like Joel would say, rend your hearts and not your garments, right? Like, 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 like wear the sackcloth, put it on, not just, not just literally, but metaphorically. These witnesses are my olive trees, lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, just like Zechariah prophesied in the rebuilt temple with the lampstand set up to symbolize his priest and the king that were to be the ones that were going to bring restoration to people of Israel. Then you will be my priests. You will be my kings. Revelation itself uses this language. You will be a kingdom of priests, it says. Go back to Revelation chapter 4. But again, he's assuming you know these storylines. You are going to be my lampstands. You are going to be my olive trees and that great Zechariah tradition of God raising up his people to be the middlemen for him, to be rulers in the earth, but not in the ways of the kings of the earth today in the way that God brings his presence and authority. You are the Daniel. 
You are the Ezekiel. You are in the stream of Zechariah. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. And I'm not even going to get into the fire and the mouth illusion. You can have fun on that, looking up where some of that comes from in the Old Testament. But God's word is going to come forth and it's going to consume every pretense and argument, as Paul would say, that, that, that the kingdoms of this earth and the powers and principalities seek to set up against it. Through you, my prophetic voice will, will blaze and it will go forth. And though you may fall, my word will endure forever. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They will be held to vindication. They will stand under the judging word of God. Go with the metaphors here. These men have power to shut up the sky like Elijah so that it will not rain during the time when he lived in an apostate Christian kingdom under Ahab and Jezebel. They have the power to turn waters into blood like Moses did before the superpower Egypt and the magicians and the signs and wonders that they did to show that God's hand is here. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast, just like the beasts of Daniel, rose up. Don't go Revelation beasting on me yet. We're in the Old Testament country, all right? Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, just like Daniel talked about four beasts that would come until a son of man would appear and these beasts would ravage the land and ravage his people. This beast will come up and attack them, will attack you, and overpower and kill them, just like it did them of ages past. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. This will literally happen in Jerusalem because you know what? Jesus is the greatest of the prophets. Jesus models his ministry on the prophets. Jesus sees himself as standing in the stream of the prophets. So when you stand in the stream of the prophets, it's not just Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Amos and Hosea and Zechariah. It's also John the Baptist. It's also Jesus. This is all one great storyline. And all of their stories are the prophetic voice of God trying to come to people in times such as these. So, just as, a ser- just as a servant is no greater than his master, so what happened to Jesus will happen to you. And we've got Daniel imagery smashing against Jesus imagery. Image upon layer upon image upon layer. Let's keep going and teasing it out. For three and a half days, People from every people, tribe, and language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse their burial. The three and a half year period of time for Daniel was symbolic for a long period of time. Take the three and a half day period of time as the period of time you live in right now. As the prophetic word of the church goes out, as you are called to testify and bring witness into this world, you will. Go forth with the power of God, but you will also be bloodied and left to die in the streets and the kingdoms and nations and people will gloat over you. All right? The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts because the prophets, the church, had tormented those who lived on the world with their words. But after the three and a half days, 
a breath of life from God entered them just like Jesus rose from the dead after three days, right? And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And you could just think of some of the Jesus story there. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. A tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed. There's layer upon layer there. I don't care about the details of that. It will get bogged down. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Now, I know I didn't explain every detail to you. I know as I was doing that, I was just dropping allusions to these prophets and hopefully hinting at things of stories that you might not know. But hopefully what it did is at least gave you the direction of where to go. You don't need every detail unless you want to enter into the storyline. But there is a commonality of every single prophet. And the commonality of every single prophet is this. God will work through them in a mighty way and their work will not be undone. And they will suffer. That is the commonality of a prophet. We can test it right now. Pick a prophet. Pick a prophet. Literally, pick a prophet. Hosea. Hosea. All right. Hosea is this prophet who is commanded to bring word to apostate Israel. And what he has to do is marry a prostitute and then remain faithful to her even as she continues to sell herself as a living image that God's people have adulterated themselves against him. But despite God having every right to divorce them, remains faithful to them. Imagine, imagine actually having to do that. Imagine God coming to you and saying, that's what you have to do, literally because your life is going to be an object lesson. And your object lesson is even going to be mocked, ridiculed, and rejected by the very people of God who A, don't get it, and B, those who do get it think you're a fool. The word will go out in a powerful way, but you will suffer. Right? Give me profit. I, I heard Micah and I heard Elijah. I think I'm going to take Elijah on this one just because he's alluded to right here. Elijah is called by God to prophesy to the ancient people, the northern kingdom of Israel, under King Ahab, which is literally where Moby Dick gets the wicked Ahab, like Captain Ahab name from its direct allusion to that because he was so apostate. And he married this, 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 this Canaanite woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel wore the pants in that family. And Jezebel couldn't care less about Yahweh. She was all about her pagan gods and bringing her pagan gods into Israel. And Elijah was called to speak against that. Even when the entire administration, the entire kingdom, the entire network went after Baal. And Elijah's out there hiding in Mount Sinai for his life because Jezebel puts a hit on him his life and he's like I'm the only one left no there's 7,000 there are 7,000 who have been set apart hmm I think we saw that illusion in here at the end there are 7,000 who have been set apart who have remained faithful to God but they had to live in hiding they had to live in underground despite the fact that Elijah did things like go up on Mount Carmel and challenge 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah literally called down fire from heaven to consume 
the sacrifices before them. Elijah literally shut up heaven, meaning closed it up so that it did not rain for three and a half years in a test of wills against Jezebel going, who's going to break, you or me? God is not going to send rain as you seek your rain God, because that's what Baal is, as a rain God. He's a storm God. So it's layer upon layer upon layer. These are the stories that define ancient Israel. And just like Elijah, the power of God will work through you, and you will suffer mightily. You will be threatened. You will be hunted down, right? I think two witnesses, yeah, good question, because I think it's another layer of prophecy. I think he's smashing the Jesus story in it. Jesus is the greatest of prophets. Um, God will work him in mightily, and he'll suffer. Same paradigm, right? Would you say that God worked through Jesus mightily, and and, and those are self-explanatory ways. Would you say that Jesus suffered? Next week at 10 o'clock, we're going to get to this line where Jesus is going to gather with his, with his disciples in the upper room on Monday, Thursday. Jesus is about to die. He's giving his last will and testament. And he says to them, you fear that I am going and I understand, but don't worry, you're going to do greater things than these. Have you ever thought about doing greater things than Jesus? So it kind of puts you in a rock and a hard place because if you say, if I do greater things than Jesus, you feel really like kind of blasphemous, right? But, but, that, but then if you say, no, that's not true, then you're actually calling Jesus a liar. So you wrestle that one out in the night and see if you can win. Um, Jesus sent his apostles and disciples out, and not just the apostles, but his disciples out. 72 of them, as Luke will record, um, in two-by-twos. And there, there's Old Testament reasons for that about bringing witness. Um, every witness has to be established by two or three. Um, so, so again, illusion upon illusion, layer upon layer. But he sent them out with authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the kingdom. Because for Jesus, the fundamental ministry is not the miracles. The fundamental ministry is always preaching the kingdom. And the miracles are nothing more than signs and aids to help bring people to it. I think we're seeing the same pattern of Jesus here for the church today, that these two witnesses are us. Just like Jesus literally sent out two to two, we are called to be God's prophetic voice in the world. That's what's going on in this Revelation storyline. Up to this point, we have been seeing what we are going to face somewhat passively. This is what's going to be placed upon us. But we've seen we've been numbered. We see we've been deployed for this spiritual war. Revelation 11 is where it finally turns, shall we say, offensive. Not offensive, but offensive, if you will. Your role, like the prophets of old, like the stories that get in your bones, God is going to do the same thing through you. The same thing through you that he did through Daniel that he did through Ezekiel, that he did through Micah, I think you say, said, that he did through Hosea, that he did through Elijah, that he did through Christ. God has a message that needs to blaze forth to this world to bring both judgment and call to repentance. And God will work through you in acts of power and you will suffer. And I think that's the picture Revelation 11 is trying to paint. And I think the hope for John's readers, if not for us, 
is that the stories define them were meant to be motivating to them and encouraging to them as things were getting dropped. So let me rephrase to the stories that define us. It would be as if John was writing this today, that he would say, just as Luke had to flee from the empire, but finally through the power of the force overcame in the end, so you will be my Jedi. Just as Frodo had to travel, hiding from the eye of Sauron, facing forces beyond his control, you will be attacked and hunted down. But in the end, God will save the world through you. Right? Just as Harry was hunted his entire life by Voldemort and had to give his life even in the end. Sorry if that was a spoiler alert. Um, God will resurrect you. I mean, like, 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 like just as Rocky fought fight after fight after fight after fight, and no matter how many times he got knocked down, learned what it meant to get back up and keep fighting again. That's what the movie's about, right? I don't know what the stories are that define you. Just as Michael Jackson moonwalked through the power of God, because no human can move like that, God will move through you and your hand will sparkle and your socks will glow. I mean, like, like it, it, it's, it's an utterly obtuse reference, but you know exactly what I mean, don't you? They did. They did. We just don't know the Old Testament because those stories aren't what define us and are a part of us. I don't say that's a judge. Don't, don't hear that wrong. I'm just trying to give you the window of how what moves them, John is playing on for that greater purpose. So, yeah, Mike. Yeah. I think that's exactly what it is. If you didn't hear Mike, he said, is this basically like John just doing almost like the equivalent of a Google dump? His point is not that, not that you're going to do a deep like investigation or meditation on each little detail, but because the stories are already a part of you, right? Quick mentions and dumping a ton of them just keeps hopefully raising the sense of hope, the sense of encouragement, the sense of inspiration, the sense of stealing yourself against what you're going through. I mean, I, I can't speak for you, but one of the reasons I like fiction and I like movies is because I like, I, I kind of identify with the characters. Even if I have nothing in common with them, there's something in them that I feel like that's like partially like me or I want to be like or brings me excitement. It's, it's, it's why 10-year-old boys dress up like Jedis, isn't it? I keep going back to that one. And it's why 48 or whatever, how old I am now, year old men still kind of secretly want to be them, right? We have the stories 
that define us. And if it's a part of your life, just the mere mention of it goes, oh yeah, I get it. It's just dumping, 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 dumping. Story upon story upon story. Revelation's an Old Testament book. It assumes those are the stories that define you. And just so we bring it back full circle, I've said it multiple times, but I know I've got to keep reinforcing the underlying point. What is true of the prophets is true of you. What God has done through the prophets is now continuing through God's hand, through you, different empire, same story. Different set of details, same pattern. God is working through his people in the face of empire, Rome, fill in the blank of what you wanted today, right? Doing the exact same thing until Christ returns. And you're going to actually see it end with the end of the world here in just a second. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so here's what I think is happening at verse 13. I think it is the exact same pattern that we saw in Revelation 6 and 7. You remember in Revelation 6 and 7, we had seven seals, and here we have seven trumpets. And the seven seals were divided into a four and three pattern. There was the four horsemen, and then the three kind of signs to follow. And when you hit the sixth sign, it's really kind of bringing the end the end of the world. Um, and the seventh one is kind of the glory scene afterwards. Well, here we're at the end of the second woe, which we had, you know, the four trumpets and then the two woes. So we're at the same kind of point in the repeating storyline. And we see the same cataclysmic things happen. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. We've seen that's a nice trigger word in Revelation for the end of the world. Um, and a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed, survivors were terrified. The second one was passed, the third was coming, and the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We're getting a picture of Christ's second coming. It's here. The kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. We give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, the one who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. I mean, can you say Judgment Day more literally? And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who, rever who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and because these stories don't define you, but because they defined the ancient people of God, they see all the things that in their both storyline and fan fiction they believed were going to happen when God would return on the day of the Lord. 
Within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. I'll just give you one little detail. I don't know if you remember this in the Old Testament storyline, but the Ark of the Covenant got ripped off. It got either ripped off by Shishak, who was an Egyptian who kind of ran a raid. And if you go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, they actually give a line mentioning that about Shishak, um, who may have plundered the temple and stolen the Ark. But there's a later tradition that said, no, Shishak didn't quite get the Ark. But when the Babylonians were about to plunder the temple, that what Jeremiah did was that he hid the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm off the biblical grid now, but this is the fan fiction stuff that surrounds it. (laughs) That he hid the Ark of the Covenant and that no one knew where he hid the Ark of the Covenant because God kind of did like his own kind of like mojo with it too. And that when God would return to kind of reestablish his kingdom, the ark was going to reappear. And so John is kind of picking up on the stories that define these people. They might not define you. You might not care. But they define them. And so understand what the story meant to them. Because by understanding what it meant to them, you can translate the hope that it's meant to bring. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're in this time of prophetic horror, the power of God working through us and suffering. But the time is coming when all of this is going to happen, when the ground is going to shake and God is going to show up and the 24 elders are going to shout out and praise that the kingdom of God has finally come to right these wrongs and to bring vindication for God's people and judgment on his enemies and the hope of the age to come. That's the basic Revelation story, isn't it? So, does that help? Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, and I guess um, I'm still wondering about it. I think it's from, um, what was it, Osborne's um, yeah. commentary. Mm-hmm. But he, he kind of mentioned, I hadn't noticed this before, but that typically you don't see the, the enemies of the nations repenting. Like, I mm-hmm. And that's why I think it is the eschaton here at the end, meaning judgment day or meaning when Christ comes again. Because if you remember like Philippians 2, where it, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what he's doing in Philippians 2, you can read it on your own, is giving a picture that, that Christ came, Christ humbled himself, Christ died God exalted Christ, God raised Christ, Christ seated in the heavens, and then when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead, every knee will bow and every tongue will finally confess. Those who hated him and those who love him, recognizing I must bow before him because his power is now revealed and we see that he is king and Lord, and you just don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation when the day comes. And to Osborne's point, that's why I think it's one more piece that has to say it's the whole storyline of the church age and the culmination here. So I'm out of time. You know, let me leave you with just a couple of things. We're going to go into Revelation 12 next week, which gives us a different picture of the church age. Because remember, we're in the little scroll now. So we're getting like focused on our lives right now and what, what our role is. Maybe this is what you want to do with something like Revelation 11. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's going 
the stories of the Bible are not the stories that define me. Because I don't really know the stories of the prophets of old. I know a favorite verse, but I don't know what they were about. I don't know the drama around it. I don't know the emotional quotient to it. I don't understand what they were plunged into. I don't get the human aspect. And maybe you just need to take one prophet, be it Daniel or Ezekiel or Elijah or John the Baptist, and, and, and kind of understand the human side of their storyline and look to make it more your story. And maybe it just starts by reading that prophet a couple of times. And then maybe you've got to come talk to me and you're like, Dave, I'm lost. Come help and I will help you with that. But maybe it's getting some of those stories to define you more than the stories of our age. Or maybe the takeaway from Revelation 11 is simply to say, this is my story. So how am I called to be this revelation kind of witness human being? What are the mighty acts of God that he's seeking to do through me as I bring his testimony to the world and the suffering that I'll face? And Lord, how do I step into that? And how do I prepare for that? And how do I steel myself to be ready for that? And how do I not flee and shirk from that, but become bold as a result of that? Maybe that's what Revelation 11 needs to do for you today. I, I don't know, but I would encourage you to pick one of those two paths to make Revelation more than just a code to be cracked, but a story to live, if you will. And I think if you do that, you're doing what it wants you to do. So we're going to end it there. And uh, I just thank you, as always, for coming today. Um, hopefully this opened the windows a little bit more to see. And uh, yeah, God bless.